The first five books of the Bible, called the Pentateuch, Penta means five, right, books of the Bible, are also called traditionally the Torah, which is a Hebrew word that means law or instruction. When the Bible refers to the book of the law or the book of Moses or the law of Moses, there are pieces of those five books that it refers to specifically, but in general, it's this opening book of five. And they are to be read not just as individuals, as we have done, but also as a unit. There are several parts of the Bible that are constructed and written that way in that they're intended to be read together. Ezra and Nehemiah are an excellent example of that. Luke and Acts are an excellent example. The Minor Prophets, the Twelve, is often expected to be read as a whole, not just in its pieces. So as we come to the end of looking at the final piece here, it's good for us to go back and look at where we've been and where we are situated in the entire uh, look of of the Pentateuch here. And we've discussed it more so in Leviticus when we really got into this. But the Pentateuch is organized in what is called a chiastic structure. Chi is the Greek letter X. Maybe you're in a fraternity or sorority and you know what I mean when I say the chi, right? Well, it's an X-shaped letter and that is how a chiastic outline is followed. So we tend to go one A, B, C, maybe little one, little two, and then back to two. So we kind of go down like this. A chiastic structure would go A, B, C, B, A. That's how it would be outlined. And so what you would do is you would start at the beginning. You'd go down, so to speak, into the center. Something pivotal would happen at the center. Then you'd come out. And on your way out, the steps would parallel the steps going in, but they would be different and they would be changed based on what happened in the middle. And this was a literary device that they used. And that is how the Torah is organized. Moses was a, was a great writer, as we know, one of the first writers in, in human history, actually. And uh, he knew what he was doing. And if there may have been others that came later, like Joshua or maybe Ezra, that refined the structure, that's perfectly acceptable in the terms of inerrancy. But the Bible says Moses wrote it, so we'll give him all the credit. Let's look at this structure here then. Genesis describes the fall from grace. That we were in the promised land, but by the end of it, we're coming out of the promised land. There's a little nested theme there that it's referring to the land of Israel, but it's also referring to all of human history. That just as the Israelites left the promised land and went down to Egypt, likewise, humanity was in the Garden of Eden and had to leave, had to descend out of the mountain of God, to use another illustration. The book of Exodus is we're traveling through the wilderness. So we're leaving Egypt and we're going through the wilderness towards Mount Sinai. And that's, of course, the great story of the deliverance from Egypt, the Red Sea and all of it. And it ends with the arrival at Mount Sinai. Now, the center is Leviticus. This is when they are given the instructions of how they are to worship. The blueprint for the tabernacle, they build all the implements. The priests go into the tabernacle. And actually, the center of Leviticus, and thereby the center of the Torah, is the study of the Day of Atonement. And the center of that chapter organized chiastically also, is the sprinkling of the blood. So we've already preached that sermon, but it's pretty cool to look at. So we've, we've gone out of the promised land, traveling through the wilderness to the Mount Sinai, where in the middle, the turning point is we have an encounter with God. We have an ability now to dwell in God's presence again. Numbers narrates this, the wandering in the wilderness, going back to the promised land. And that involved them having to take a step back and do it for 40 more years as punishment. But in the grand structure, it it still serves the same purpose. But now we're 
leaving Sinai. We're coming away from the meeting with God into Deuteronomy, which is, leads them right up to the entry into the promised land. That the last thing Moses says is, now go into the land and get it right this time. It's a beautiful picture. And you can see how there's, there's great thought and structure and artistry behind the writing of our, of our Bible. Muslims, for example, love to talk about the beauty of the Arabic language. Well, we ought to do a little bit more of that ourselves. You know, We ought to talk about the artistry and the beauty of our, our own scriptures. But that's the journey in which the law has taken us. The children of Israel leaving their land, traveling to Mount Sinai, meeting with God, traveling through the wilderness, back to the promised land. But it's also a foreshadowing of what is going to happen ultimately with humanity. That we've been cast out of the garden, out of the promised land, so to speak, in slavery. But we managed to leave the slavery through the wilderness to an encounter with God. Where the blood was sprinkled as Jesus was on the cross. And there remains a journey through the wilderness that we call life until the end we arrive at that celestial city. When we arrive in God's presence forever and ever. There's so many ways you can apply this, but that's where we're situated. And that is how Deuteronomy functions in this, this structure. And as neat and tidy as that structure is, Deuteronomy itself is not really organized that way. It's really not quite as clever, but it doesn't need to be clever. It's still God's word. I'll just remind you of where we've been so far here. Chapters one through four contained a narrative introduction of the book of Deuteronomy, everywhere that we've been so far, mostly reminding us of the book of Numbers and the wanderings in the wilderness, which makes sense because Deuteronomy is the capstone, the conclusion of that process. Then Moses began to describe the law. Chapters 5 through 11 were general principles. I keep coming back to chapter 6 because it's such an important passage. The Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, right? But then in chapters 12 through 26, we had a lot of specific instructions. We had things related to revenge, things related to sexuality, things related to borrowing money. So you had the general principles at the beginning, but then it begins to be applied in chapters 12 through 26. Those two sections are the bulk of what we discussed. Verse, or chapters 27 and 28 looked at the blessings and the curses for those that either kept or did not keep the law. And of course, the, the dreadful bit is that no one is able to really keep the law as they ought, as the New Testament teaches us. Chapters 29 through 30 was Moses' final appeal to the people. It's kind of like, here's the rules. Here's what happens if you don't keep the rules. So please keep the rules. Right? You ever say that to your kids? Please. Drop them off for Sunday school. Please behave yourself this time, Micah. Just <laughs> Maybe that's just me. He's a good boy. Chapters 31 through 34 are a little different. They're, they're more ceremonial in nature. It's kind of like the final handoff. Chapter 31, you see the official ordination of Joshua. We shall return to that when we get to that book. But then chapter 32 and 33 are very interesting because they're poetic. Chapter 32 is the song of Moses to remind the people of the book when they fall. Chapter 33, as we'll see tonight, is Moses' blessing over the people. And chapter 34 narrates the death of Moses, which is the main focus for us tonight. So you, that's the, the structure of this book, and that's how it fits into the grand scheme of things. The main thing for us to grasp from studying the Torah, the Pentateuch together, is that God reached down into history 
selected a nation for himself that he might preserve the knowledge of the truth and his promises that he had made, not just to Israel and Abraham, but all the way back in the garden when he said that the head of the serpent would be crushed by the seed of woman. Now, as we go through the rest of the Bible, and we've already gotten to it, we're studying Revelation for crying out loud, but I'm not going to try to save the spoiler for you. The law will become a burden for the people because the people will not be able to keep it which was always known by the Lord, and I've been trying to draw out as we've gone through this, that even in Deuteronomy, the law of laws, right, reminds us that you can't keep these laws. You are dependent and reliant upon the grace and forbearance of God. So that reminds us that that was always where this was going. It was always leading to Jesus. As glorious as the law was, as glorious as it remains, its purpose was to in a sense, demoralize the people and cause them like David did to throw themselves on the mercy of God and say, I can't do this. To prepare the hearts and the minds and the theology of the people to receive Jesus Christ when he comes. And we'll return to that theme at the end one more time as we finish the, the Pentateuch tonight. But this merited a longer introduction than usual because it's not just this section we're concluding, but it's the end of a book and it's the end of the beginning of scripture. Let's read now chapter 33. We're going to start with the blessing that Moses gave. We'll look at the first five verses together. This is the blessing with which Moses, the man of God, blessed the people of Israel before his death. He said, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned from Seir upon us. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came from the ten thousands of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. Yes, he loved his people. All his holy ones were in his hand. So they followed in your steps, receiving direction from you. When Moses commanded us a law as a possession for the assembly of Jacob, thus the Lord became king in Yeshurun. When the heads of the people were gathered, all the tribes of Israel together. I've already mentioned that the last four chapters of Deuteronomy are very ceremonial. It's the official handoff. And chapter 32 and 33, there's actually a mini chiasm here if you want to look at this. 31 is Joshua being ordained. Chapter 32 is a poetic warning to the people. Chapter 33 is a poetic blessing to the people. And then chapter 4 is the death of Moses. So this is why I'm, I'm organizing it as a discrete section here. Because we just had the song in chapter 32. Now we've got a poetic blessing in chapter 33. Moses' final blessing and final words over the 12 tribes. And he begins by recounting the story of the Exodus in language of God as a conquering hero. You know, to all you songwriters out there, why don't we pull from some of this language every now and then? That the Lord shone forth from the mountains with a flaming fire in his right hand. You can see the, the host. Whenever we call God the Lord of hosts, we're talking about armies now, right? That God is a king. He's a conqueror. And he is telling the story that we've already read, but he's describing it in this heightened poetic language, which is what songs are supposed to do. It's also interesting that he describes their journey into the promised land from Mount Sinai through Seir and Mount Paran. Seir and Mount Paran are in the land of Edom. Why am I drawing this out very briefly? Because as we discussed in the book of Exodus, I'm convinced that Mount Sinai, as many people are also, I'm not on my own here, that Mount Sinai was not in the traditional location in what is now called the Sinai Peninsula, but rather on the other side of the Gulf of Aqaba in what we now call the Arabian Peninsula. 
because when he describes them coming from Sinai to the promised land, they go through Mount Seir. They go through Mount Paran, which is the northern part of that, which is the land of Edom. So if it's where I think it is, and you can go back and look at this, uh, that's the straight line, a straight shot to the promised land, an 11-day journey according to the scriptures. And uh, rather than having to go all the way around the sea and down into the down into the the Sinai Peninsula, which is so far away, it also resolves the question of where exactly did they cross the Red Sea? That's what gives rise to people thinking that maybe they had to wade through a swamp or something like that. We've already been over it. That's just one piece of evidence I wanted to draw out to you. But he brings them all the way up to verse 5 when he says, all the heads of people were gathered and all the tribes together. He's kind of bringing it up to the present day. They are right now gathered together. And he says Yeshurun, which remember Yeshurun is uh, almost a, a term of endearment that God has for Israel. It means upright. Yeshurun means upright. Also, by the way, it's always a soft J in Hebrew. They have no J sound. It's Yeshurun or Yerushalem or Yaakov. But just so you know, that's why I pronounce it that way. And what follows is, is very similar to the blessing that Jacob gave to his children in Genesis chapter 49, where he's going to go through each tribe. He's going to skip Simeon in this one, and he's going to combine two more. He's going to bless each tribe. And these blessings given by a father or somebody in a similar position were considered to be prophetic. And you can see that a lot of these are, in fact, prophetic, which just makes sense. I mean, it's Moses, right? And it's in the scriptures, so of course it's going to be. And so... As we talk about Moses blessing what were effectively his children, although not literally, and then the next chapter is about his death, this section, and in many ways this book, is all about legacy, what you're leaving behind you. But the inevitable fact that every parent and every mother and father must come to the end of their life where they can go no farther and must hand it off to the next generation. We've hit this theme a lot because it's really the whole purpose of this book. It's the whole context. And we're going to talk as we finish reading this here about this idea of speaking something over somebody. Now, some people can take that a little far and they, you know, they believe that they can just like command something over you. And, you know, I believe that God has prophets in the church. But I, I think what I'm going to draw out here is more the way you live your life and the way you raise your children, the way you interact with people around you, the things you say in broader terms than just your words are meaningful for a person's life. So you're constantly speaking over your family and friends, whether you mean to or not. And it's time to start considering what do you want your effect to be on those who knew you? When people recount your life, or even when they move away and, and they can't be around you, what do you want people to say it was like when they knew you well? It's something to consider rather than just to allow to happen to you. So let's go through each of these. I'm not going to draw out a bunch of detail here uh, because he doesn't give us a whole lot of detail. And I also really want to get to chapter 34. So uh, let's look at verse 6. Let Reuben live and not die, but let his men be few. I'm going to draw out each tribe as well as the blessing that Moses wishes for them. And for Reuben, who of course was the oldest child of Jacob, the oldest son, he wishes them longevity, that the tribe may endure. Now, if you have the King James or the old King James or, or uh, sorry, new King James or one of the older translations, you might have in verse six, but let his men not be few. But if you look closely, you will see that that word not is in italics 
or you may have a footnote next to it. What that means, whenever it's in italics, that means that word is not in the text, the Hebrew text, that it's added for clarification. But this is a great example of how, when you should not add words because the translators of the King James saw that the Hebrew said, let his men be few and thought he couldn't possibly mean that and added the word not, making it the exact opposite of what Moses was saying. One reason among many why I really value and promote and support the newer translations, taken as a whole, they're, they're wonderful resources for us to have. Because if you look at, at Reuben's life, Reuben as a man had violated his father's concubine Bilhah in Genesis 35 and was cursed for it. And when, when Jacob went to bless his children, he didn't have nice things to say about Reuben. Moses is a little nicer, but he almost says, I hope the Lord helps your tribe endure, but I hope you never get too big or powerful. Reuben was never a good leader for Israel. Even when he was alive, he was the one that said, yeah, let's, let's not kill Joseph, but let's throw him into a pit. Rather than stepping up and saying, no, you're not doing this. I'm the oldest and you're going to listen to me. He also had, of course, that sexual sin. So perhaps Moses looking at this tribe is saying, I love you guys, but I think you'd be better off without having as much power and influence over these people. Very honest man, Moses. He's 120. He didn't care what you think. Verse 7, and this he said of Judah, hear, O Lord, the voice of Judah. Bring him into his people. With your hands, contend for him and be a help against his adversaries. So now Judah, immediately you recognize we are not going in birth order here. Uh, pretty much every time we list the tribes, it's in a different order and you can't always tell why. But he blesses Judah with victory. He's asking for Judah to be victorious against his enemies with God's help. Now Judah, of course, was the tribe that would give rise to David and Solomon and the entire kingly line of Israel, culminating, of course, with Jesus Christ, the King of Kings. And so it is Amazingly prophetic for Moses to say, Lord, with your hands, contend for him and be a help against his adversaries. Because Judah would be adversarial against the tribes in the north. Solomon's son was a knucklehead, Rehoboam, and a bunch of the tribes seceded. The only ones that remained were Benjamin, whatever Levites were living in the land at the time. Some of them went with the northern kingdom. And the tribe of Simeon. Simeon is not listed here and is not listed very often because the tribe of Simeon dwindled so much that it was absorbed eventually into the tribe of Judah. And of course, this was the tribe of Jesus, as I said, whom God will help and is helping to defeat every enemy. So prophetic words from Moses. Next one is a little longer, 8 through 11. And of Levi, he said, give to Levi your Thumim and your Urim to your godly one, whom you tested at Massa, with whom you quarreled at the waters of Meribah who said of his father and mother, I regard them not. He disowned his brothers and ignored his children, for they observed your word and kept your covenant. They shall teach Jacob your rules and Israel your law. They shall put incense before you and hold burnt offerings on your altar. Bless, O Lord, his substance and accept the work of his hands. Crush the loins of his adversaries, of those who hate him, that they rise not again. Long section for Levi who was the priestly tribe, which makes sense why uh, they would have him uh, with such a longer section. Uh, and the Lord prays that they will be accepted in their worship. He's praying for piety, that they would always live to provide acceptable sacrifices to the Lord. Don't let them flag in their spiritual worship before you, O God. 
He mentions the thumim and the urim. These are words that means the lights and the perfections. We do not exactly know what these are. That's why they're transliterated. It very clearly in the scripture was a way for the priest to determine the will of God. So many people have suggested that inside the pouch, we know that inside the breastplate of the priest, if you remember, there was a pouch in which he kept the urim and the thumim. And some have speculated that this was like maybe a white or a black stone and that he would ask for the Lord's guidance, reach into the pouch blindly and pull out whichever one and that would be God's answer, yes or no. Uh, others have gotten a little more fanciful with their interpretation and said, well, they would bring out these black and white stones and one of them would glow. The Lord's power would, would shine through it. Bible doesn't say that, but since it has the word lights in it, that has led some people to speculate. The whole point he's saying is, may Levi always be the one who is standing in such a place where they can discern the will of God. He refers to the testing at Massa and Meribah, which Exodus 17, this is when they asked for water and Moses struck the rock and the water came out of the rock. But most of all, he's, he's not just talking about that testing. He's talking about the redemption of Levi at Sinai. Simeon and Levi had also been cursed by their father because you remember the incident with Dina, who was Jacob's daughter, who had either been, depending on how you read the story, either raped by Shechem, the prince, or she had run away with him and shamed her family. Either way, not a pleasant story. Levi and Simeon sacked the city of Shechem through treachery and deceit, and they took them all away, slaves, and plundered them. And so they lost out on the blessing of the eldest. So that's why we end up with Judah, because Reuben sinned, Levi sinned, Simeon sinned, flipped those two, Levi was third, and then Judah was the one to receive the blessing. But they were redeemed and became the priests of the Lord at the golden calf. As all the other tribes were worshiping before this idol in orgiastic frenzy, and Moses went forward and said, whoever is on the Lord's side, come to me. The tribe of Levi came to Moses, and he said, put a stop to this. And they went out with their swords and cut down the people until they stopped, which tells you how far gone they were. And this is when he says they did not regard their families. Point being, we honored the Lord more even than our own children and mothers and fathers. If they were sinning, they were struck down too. And they received the priestly blessing for that. This is also likely where Jesus, of course, Jesus was God and was inspired. Don't get me wrong. But where Jesus draws his language of hating your father and mother and loving me the most. That a lot of things Jesus said were not original to him, and that's no disrespect. He's pulling from things they already knew in the Old Testament law and re-emphasizing them like only he could. So he's praying and blessing them. They will always have such a role of spiritual leadership in the land of Israel. To be teachers, to minister in the sanctuary. And when he says, crush the loins of his adversaries, this is not just a graphic picture. He's saying, may anybody who ever wants to come against you die out. May they be barren and sterile and never be able to raise children. Anybody who declares himself an enemy of Levi. Verse 12, of Benjamin he said, The beloved of the Lord dwells in safety. The high God surrounds him all day long and dwells between his shoulders. Benjamin. This is the tribe of King Saul and Jonathan. This is the tribe of Paul the Apostle. And he prays that they may be safe. He's asking for favor from God. Protection from God might be a better word there from the Lord. And you see this tender image 
of a child being held, the beloved of the Lord, which is, it makes sense. That's who Benjamin was, right? He was the one that Jacob didn't want to let go because he was the last son of his wife, Rachel, whom he loved. And by saying he dwells between his shoulders, this is a picture of like holding him, right? I've got you right here between your shoulders. I'm not letting you go. So very tender picture. He's praying that Benjamin may always have intimacy with God, favor from God, protection from God, which is something I think we'd all want for our children, right? Another long one, 13 through 17. And of Joseph, he said, blessed by the Lord be his land with the choicest gifts of heaven above and of the deep that crouches beneath with the choicest fruits of the sun and the rich yield of the months with the finest produce of the ancient mountains and the abundance of the everlasting hills with the best gifts of the earth and its fullness and the favor of him who dwells in the bush. May these rest on the head of Joseph on the pate of him who is prince among his brothers. Pate means top of the head in case you didn't know that. A firstborn bull, he has majesty and his horns are the horns of a wild ox. With them he shall gore the peoples, all of them, to the ends of the earth. They are the ten thousands of Ephraim, and they are the thousands of Manasseh. Joseph gets a long portion here. He's speaking of Joseph as only one tribe until the end, uh, which when he separates it into two. And this is the one to whom Jacob gave a double portion. So he's praying that Joseph will have prosperity. He's praying for, in everything you do, in all of your lands, may the yield always be good. He talks about the land giving a good yield of crops. He talks about the depths potentially providing a good yield of fish that they can eat. He even talks about the hills and the mountains, which is likely talking about mining, of getting ore out of the mountains. He's saying, may everything you do, may you prosper. May you always have increase and gain in your life. And he compares them also to a bull, with power and majesty. Bulls, as they are still to this day, right, uh, as a symbol of power and of strength. And he says, that's how you're going to be, that you're going to be a powerful tribe. You're going to drive your enemies to the ends of the earth. And then in the end of verse 17, he divides it to the two tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh. Usually when they're counting the 12, they count Jacob twice, or sorry, Joseph twice, Ephraim and Manasseh, and they leave Levi out because Levi was a, was a special case. Notice also that he says 10,000s of Ephraim and thousands of Manasseh, because remember, Manasseh was the oldest one, Ephraim was the youngest, but when Jacob went to bless him, he switched his hands, he crossed his hands over because he's saying the, the younger son is going to be a greater tribe, which is exactly what happened, that Ephraim became a, it became the word you use to describe the northern kingdom. You'd have the Judah in the south, even though there were other tribes, Judah was predominant, and the northern tribes, they would call it Samaria, they'd call it Israel, or they'd call it Ephraim, because Ephraim was the dominant tribe. Verse 18 and 19, we're going to double up here. And of Zebulun, he said, Rejoice, Zebulun, in your going out, and Issachar in your tents. Two tribes. They shall call peoples to their mountains. There they offer right sacrifices, for they draw from the abundance of the seas and the hidden treasures of the sand. Zebulun and Issachar are taken together, and I have found that when I try to remember the 12 tribes of Israel, Zebulun is always the one I forget. But he asks for their going out and their staying in. So you see the going out and also in your tents. This is a very common uh, blessing in this culture. May your coming and going be blessed. And he asks for them to have joy. Rejoice in your going out and rejoice in your tents. So he's praying that they would have joy as they work the seas and the sands. 
which was their destiny. Zebulun and Issachar were tribes that settled up in the north and along the coastline. So these were seafaring tribes, as was Naphtali. We'll get to him in just a second. Uh, that they would be blessed in that way. And I also love the prophecy that you see in verse 19 that would escape you if you didn't know what you were looking for. They shall call peoples to their mountains. Peoples is very often a, a term that means Gentiles. Amim is the word. Other peoples besides Israel where they offer right sacrifices. Issachar and Zebulun were the ones that settled in the land that came to be called Galilee. And of course, it is out of Galilee that Jesus Christ came, where he did all of his ministry. And all the nations have been drawn to what came out of these two tribes. And this is also the right sacrifice, that everybody's going to come to the mountain offer right sacrifices. We're like, really? In Zebulun and Issachar? It's like, yes, because that's where Jesus came, who is the true sacrifice, and who is Mount Zion, you might say, the, the mountain of the Lord. An unexpected blessing but it's amazing how the Old Testament just unlocks once you know what it was coming in the new. Okay, moving on to the tribe of Gad. And of Gad, he said in verse 20, Blessed be he who enlarges Gad. Gad crouches like a lion. He tears off arm and scalp. He chose the best of the land for himself, for there a commander's portion was reserved. And he came with the heads of the people. With Israel he executed the justice of the Lord and his judgments for Israel. Gad is the seventh tribe here, or the seventh blessing that's given. Uh, to be blessed with the best portions. He's talking about strength here. You're like a lion. You tear people apart. You've got the commander's portion. And he's referencing by choosing the best bits. When Israel conquered uh, what's called the Transjordan, meaning the across the Jordan territories, when they drove out Sihon and Og and those Amorite tribes, Gad, Reuben, and half the tribe of Manasseh said, we'd like to stay here rather than go across the Jordan River. So that's what he's referencing by saying they chose to stay in what is called Gilead. They chose the best portion. And he says, you're going to become a commander, which is unusual because Gad was one of the descendants of uh, Jacob's handmaiden, Zilpah, rather than uh, one of the true-born sons of, of Jacob and his wives. But he would, in fact, the tribe of Gad would become the strongest tribe in Gilead. Reuben, in many cases, would almost be absorbed under the umbrella of Gad, which is exactly what jo uh, Jacob prophesied would happen. So by prophesying the strength that you're a lion, you tear apart your enemies, they would need to be being on the other side, away from the protection of the river, and that's what God did for them. Verse 22, and of Dan, he said, Dan is a lion's cub that leaps from Bashan. And I wonder if they all said, what, that's it? <laughs> He's a lion's cub. It's a short blessing. A lion's cub that leaped from Bashan. What does he mean by calling him a lion's cub? What are we learning from this? I think he's describing potential. A lion's cub. And to use the words of the Lion King, right? He's going to get bigger. <laughs> right? The lion's going to grow up. He's going to be a lion. So he's looking at Dan and maybe he's saying, you know what? I see something in you. I see that one day you might not be much to look at now, but eventually you're going to be a force to be reckoned with. Samson was from the tribe of Dan. So lion cub makes a little sense, right? Although when we get to judges, the tribe of Dan was a powerful tribe, but it was not a happy tribe. And uh, they actually sparked a civil war in the land of Israel and lost. So that's one of the reasons you don't see Dan very much in the Bible. Although it's kind of like you got potential. You could go this way or you could go that way, right? 
All right, verse 23. And of Naphtali, he said, O Naphtali, sated with favor and full of the blessing of the Lord, possess the lake and the south. Naphtali was also a maritime tribe. The lake refers to the Sea of Galilee. Isn't that cool? The Sea of Tiberias, it's sometimes called. He's praying for them to have increase, full of the blessing of the Lord. Possess, he's almost like telling them, go out and take possession of the Lord, sated with favor. I've got everything God could possibly hope for me, and it's, it's, I'm full. I don't need anything else. That's Naphtali, territory increase. He's praying for them. The last one, verse 24, and of Asher, he said, most blessed of sons be Asher. Let him be the favorite of his brothers and let him dip his foot in oil. Your bars shall be iron and bronze and as your days, so shall your strength be. Asher's name means blessed. So that's why he says most blessed of sons be Asher. Blessed even by his brothers. So he's asking that the Lord would give them honor as a tribe. Reputation matters. You know, we live in an interesting time where we're, we're so big and strong as a country that we have the ability to say, I don't care what other nations think about us. And uh, that's, that can be a good thing, but it also can be a bad thing if you're not honored by people who are honorable. And so this is what he's asking for him. It's, it's a good word, honor. We shouldn't lose that one. Anna in the temple, the prophetess who would see Jesus as a baby and recognize him, was of the tribe of Asher. Which is another interesting story because Asher was one of the 10 tribes that went with Jeroboam and abandoned the house of David when they separated. But 2 Chronicles 30 tells us that under Hezekiah, when Hezekiah said, we haven't been keeping the Passover, he even sent out word to the tribes in the north to come down. And nobody did except for some of certain tribes. Zebulun was one, Asher was another. So Anna was a descendant of those that repented and actually came back to the house of David and to worship in Jerusalem as they should have. He wishes him strength, right? Bars of iron and bronze. You're trying to break down a gate made of wood. You can do it eventually. But if you got that thing supported with iron and bronze, good luck, pal. So that's what he's saying. You're going to be strong and long life. All of the, us would desire such things for our children and also for ourselves. So 10 blessings We've got 11 tribes, because he rolls two into one, and he leaves out uh, the tribe of Simeon. Verse 26. There is none like God, O Yeshurun, who rides through the heavens to your help, through the skies in his majesty. The eternal God is your dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms. And he thrust out the enemy before you and said, Destroy! So Israel lived in safety. Jacob lived alone in a land of grain and wine whose heavens drop down dew. Happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, the shield of your help and the sword of your triumph. Your enemies shall come fawning to you and you shall tread upon their backs. So he concludes this blessing with praise. Can you see how this is the inverse of what we saw in the previous chapter? Before he had a song reminding them that they had failed and they needed to repent. Now he's got a, a song pouring out blessing upon them and hoping that they'll do the right thing. So that's why they go together. He praises God like a warrior riding on the clouds. Some have suspected that Moses is deliberately taking language that was applied to Baal and applying it to the Lord instead. Kind of saying, Baal is not the cloud rider. God is the cloud rider. The true and living God is all of those things that you say God ought to be. Maybe not, but it, it certainly, it's certainly an amazing image. He speaks of God removing the Canaanites, sending them out and saying, go destroy them. 
But notice that the key line here in verse 27, the eternal God is your dwelling place. I know you're excited about the promised land. You should be. But never forget that God is your dwelling place. What you need more than land is you need the Lord of this land. The greatest blessing of all is God's presence. It's what's going to make heaven heavenly. All of us would like to see these 10 blessings that we just saw on our children, wouldn't we? Well, how do we do that? How do we ensure that for our kids? Well, that's part of what Solomon and Ecclesiastes would call vanity and grasping after the wind because you have no idea what's going to happen after you're gone. But there's something that you can do. And looking to the example of Moses here, first, you should recognize that what you speak over people that are in your care will come true, whether for good or for evil. You spend all your time telling your kids that they're useless. They're going to start to believe it eventually. Oh, that doesn't happen. It happens all the time. When I, when I speak to grown men that have kids and even grandkids of their own and have such a hard time receiving the fact that Jesus loves them because the person that was supposed to model God's love for them didn't do it, they can't get there. And if you speak joy and love over your kids, they're going to believe you. They're going to listen. We've even seen this in our own age, somewhat to our chagrin, right? If you tell every kid they're super special and the world needs to get out of the way for you, they're going to grow up and act like that's exactly the truth, right? What you speak over people will come true, especially if they're in your care, most especially your children, but also for your wife and your husband, right? Spend all your time telling your husband he's a lazy, good for nothing, and you're sick and tired of him, and why doesn't he ever try harder, and why doesn't he do this? Well, eventually he's going to start to think he's a good for nothing. He's going to start to walk around looking like a good for nothing. And you're going to sit here, what happened to that confident man I married? Well, you broke him down. And the guys, you spend all your time trying to tell your wife that, oh, why are you always wasting time? Why are you always trying to, trying to change my life? Why are you trying to keep me down? Why, are, why, why don't you just leave me alone? Well, eventually she might start leaving you alone. Man, what's with her? Why, does she never wanna, why doesn't she ever want to look good for me anymore? Well, why would she, pal? Right? You told her all those things. What you speak over somebody will come true, whether it's good or evil. But the second thing you need to recognize is only God can ultimately secure those things. So as long as we're talking about speaking things over somebody's life, or shall we say speaking something into somebody's life, you need to introduce them to the Lord. Are you actively trying to speak God into the life of people that you know? You're even your, your kids and spouse, obviously, but your coworkers. Your neighbors, your friends, are they ever hearing anybody tell them what Solomon told his son in Ecclesiastes 12, where he said, remember your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. The example of your life is one thing. We're going to get to that. But what you say matters. What you say to somebody matters. Teach them the Lord's ways. Use your words, as powerful as they are, to speak life to somebody rather than death. Blessing rather than cursing. Don't feel so insecure that you've got to beat down somebody else so that they come down to your level. How about instead just be happy for them and look to them as an example and an inspiration rather than trying to bring everybody down to your level. Do not be so selfish as to insist upon your own liberties at the expense of your children. You know, I think this is not universal, but many times I've observed that why a child goes wrong and goes wayward is because mom and dad are believers. No doubt about that. 
but they are very much in tune with their liberties and what God has given them permission to do. And they are more dogged in their pursuit of those things than they are in the things of the Lord. So that when your kid grows up, he can tell, she can tell what you really value. And if they start to see that the most important thing is not obeying the Lord, the most important thing is maintaining what's yours, then that's going to be the value that they imbibe. I've even met parents that I'm, you know, they've maybe not said it quite like this, but you can tell when you talk to them long enough. They might be 40, 45, 50 years old, and they're still trying to impress people they've never seen from high school. They're still remembering what it was like to be made fun of and mocked. And so they spent their whole life trying to get to this place. Now they've got a kid in the house. And the thought of, well, maybe we shouldn't watch movies like that in the house. Or the thought of, maybe I shouldn't be dressing like that. Or maybe I shouldn't be talking like that. You're still trying to maintain this standard that some punk kid set for you when you were 15. And it's being spilled over into the life of your child. Take care for that. Also with your spouse, as I've already talked about. Wise descendants do not come about accidentally. <laughs> it doesn't just happen. Well, he's a good kid. Good kids get ruined every day. And bad kids get worked out every single day, if you simply take the time. So we see this blessing that Moses is speaking. Make sure you're speaking blessing and not cursing into somebody. You want to leave a legacy? That's how you do it. You don't want people to have to lie at your funeral. Amen? Verse 1 of chapter 34, coming to the end here. Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. That's our next stop, by the way. And the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead as far as Dan, all Naphtali, the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the Western Sea, which would be the Mediterranean Sea, the Negev and the plain, that is the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees, as far as Zoar. And the Lord said to him, this is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to your offspring. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. We come to the end of Moses' life, the end of Moses' story, as he ascends Mount Nebo to see the land. He was denied entry into the promised land from Numbers chapter 20 when he struck the rock instead of speaking to it. He did not regard the Lord and represent the Lord as holy to the people, but he is able to see it. You know, we've discussed just now speaking life over a generation, but let's talk about ourselves here. How do we ensure our own legacy? I've met plenty of heathen people that are still incredibly proud of their mom and dad for being God-fearing, church-going folks. Isn't that interesting how that works? I would never do that, but man, my dad was a godly man. I'm proud of that. How do you ensure a legacy like that? The first thing we see from Moses here, you've got to set a destination in your family that is greater than just one life, that will last longer and take longer to achieve than one lifetime. Moses' whole life, he had a goal that he was striving for and leading the people under his care towards. He didn't get there, but he gave them everything they needed so that after he was gone, they would be able to go in and achieve it. You've got to have something that is greater than you. You've got to stop thinking of your life as the culmination of everything, that you're merely one link in the chain for your family moving forward. Immigrant families display this tenacity incredibly well, especially you look back at the history of America when people would leave even sometimes comfortable lives to come and live in the slums in New York City or wherever it was and work until their, their fingers were to the bone just so that they could live in a place where their children could go to school, right? Their whole goal in life was maybe I can get enough money to own my own house. 
but my kids will go to school and they can go to school. Maybe they can become a doctor and make a little bit of money and the family can move up. Now we're in this whole different tier. Now they can marry and they can grow and have even greater opportunities than just working that work a day job for a living. There's this generational mindset. It's the pioneer mindset. I'm going to go and build a log cabin. Maybe by the time my kids grow up, it'll be something. We can't be individualists when it comes to our families. I mean, even consider the great houses of Europe. If you're into the kings and queens and the noble houses and the heraldry and all that, right? People are like, you know what? My generation's not going to get there. But maybe if my son marries that woman, the family will elevate. And in a few generations, who knows where we might be? It's that kind of thinking that we've got to retain as people. This can be things that are not necessarily spiritual, but are not sinful. Things like gaining influence, gaining wealth, gaining status. Such things, as long as they don't take you away from the Lord, are only a blessing. But ultimately, your hope and your goal must be heaven. I said you can speak all kinds of good and bad things over people's lives. You can set good and bad goals for your lives too. But just like you need to remember to include the word of the Lord, so also you must remember to include that our, our destination as a family might be the White House in a couple generations, but the ultimate thing that all of us are going for, no matter what, is to be in glory with Jesus forever and ever. We'll get to this verse before too long, but Joshua 24, 15, you all know it. Choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. My house. We don't really talk like that anymore, you know? But our house, that's what it means to have a household, right? You think you've got, there's dad sitting at the head of the table with sons and daughters and grandchildren. There's the fire. You know, there's the meat cooking on the spit. And I might not be a king of anything, but this is my house. We don't think like that anymore. We ought to retain at least the good pieces of that. Begin by leading your home, insisting upon it. Parents, you know, I... Yes, part of your job is to help your children launch and live their own life. But you also need to instill in them the value that we're not just living for you. We want you to pursue your dreams and do great things. But you've got to keep in mind this family. Are you going to pursue something that is going to benefit this family as a whole? Are you going to raise us up? Are we going to achieve something that's going to last forever? Are you going to get out there and actually have children to continue the name of this family? You know, what's funny, we laugh about that when you're young, but then you get a little older and all of a sudden you start caring about that stuff. Maybe we should care about it sooner. And then bring your children into the dream. There comes a point where you have to stop telling your kids what to do and helping them do it with you. This is why, right? To show them, this is what I want. This is what I'm hoping for. If you guys have ever read, uh, there's a classic American novel called A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. And there's this whole great story in there. It's about this family that came over to the U.S. and we're having a hard go of it and everything. And uh, there's a scene where the mother takes her daughter into the closet and she shows her the, this box where she stashed all this money. And she's like, Mom, why are we living like this when you've got all this sitting right here? And she explains to her, every time we get any money, I put a little bit in here. Because one day we're going to buy a house. We're going to have land. We're going to have, and she you know, casts the vision for her. And she tells her, so when you get in bed and you're getting cold, you remember, I'm being cold now so that later on we don't have to be cold ever again. I'm being hungry now so we don't ever have to be ever again. And that's when the, the book totally turns and the daughter picks that up. And you might think, well, my kids will never get it from me. Yes, they will. Yeah, they will. They might wander for a bit, but they'll come back strategize as a family, plan together, set your priorities, help each other to live for more than right now. 
If the dreams that you have must either be fulfilled today by me or not at all, then you're going to despair. My life is a waste because I didn't become a billionaire. Okay, well, you got somebody coming along after you. They're going to carry your name, literally. They're going to carry your status. They're going to carry your memory. And who knows where they'll take it. As long as you've got a vision, you will move forward as a family. And it will compel you to keep the Lord's commandments. Because the Lord's ways are the only ways to accomplish any of those things. And if you want to see Jesus in heaven, there's no other way to do it than to keep his commandments. I get excited about that subject. And I talked about it more than I wanted to. But some of these old-fashioned virtues, man, we've got to get them back. Because the ones we got now ain't working. Verse 5, so Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in the valley of the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows the place of his burial to this day. And that is still true. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated. Good for him. And the people of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. Then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. Moses died atop the mountain. And notice it said, he buried him. Who buried him in verse 6? God buried him. How about that? How about that? God buried him in a place that nobody knows. Now, we do have that fascinating verse in Jude, verse 9, where he references Michael and Satan disputing over Moses' body. And that's not referenced anywhere else in the canon of Scripture. Here's where that we think that comes from. There was a document that was written in between the Testaments called the Assumption of Moses. And it was, you know, Jewish legend basically about Moses and being carried up to heaven and like secret prophecies that he gave. Here's the deal. The only remaining version we have of that is a partial version and it doesn't reference anything about Michael and Satan disputing over his body. We assume that that might be what Jude is referencing, but it could very well be that Jude was just given a revelation from the Lord to write it down. Or it could be he's just using it as an example and an illustration. But that's, that's maybe when we get to Jude, we'll talk about that more often. But the people weep over Moses. I would expect so. One of the great men of history. Don't you love the command that the people had over their emotions here? I don't feel sad. It's like, no, we should be sad. So we're going to act sad and be sad. It's kind of like when I come into the to church to worship. I don't really feel worshipful today. So? <laughs> right? Get into it. Worship. Celebrate because Jesus is worth celebrating. How do you ensure a legacy like Moses' is, man? Finish your race well and God will honor you. God will lift your name up among men if you lift his name up while you're alive. Of course, it's always the next generation that builds the tomb of the prophets, but that's okay. We're going to live forever, and we're willing to wait. Now, look at this. Moses had made some serious mistakes, hadn't he? Moses had murdered the Egyptian. He struck the rock, right? There's several times in the, in the story where it's like, Moses really should have taken a firmer hand here. And there's that note in there. He was the meekest man who ever lived. And there's some times where we almost look and go, I think a little harshness might have served you better, Moses. But he continued to walk with God. He never stopped serving the Lord, even in his mistakes. And so he was able to come to the end in the fullness of faith. Like Paul in 2 Timothy 4, 7, I have fought the good fight. I finished the race. I kept the faith. And henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who has loved his appearing. There is but one task given to man, and that is to die well. 
Your whole life is building up to one moment and you need to think about it now. How are you going to exit? Your whole life builds up to that. So are you living for that day? Now we can let our shortcomings discourage us from moving forward. Tell me if this is not the greatest lie of Satan that we all believe every day. Oh, I better not do my devotions today. I sinned this morning. God didn't want to hear from me. What? That's when you need to do your devotions, man. That's when you need to run back to the Lord. That's when you need to throw yourself on his grace and mercy. If you recognize that grace has covered you to continue, you can move on. Finishing the race well doesn't mean you do it right every step of the way. Now, we're supposed to run the race as though we're supposed to win it. But guess what? All the finishers get a prize. God is the only one that's going to give out a legitimate participation trophy. <laughs> but you've got to finish. We've studied that in Revelation. You've got to finish. I, I, it's an interesting debate maybe to talk about eternal security and all that stuff. One thing is absolutely clear. You need to finish well. If you don't finish well, it's very hard to find assurance for you in the scriptures, which means you've got to start every day fresh with a commitment to righteousness and justice and love and, I mean, effort for crying out loud. I'm not just going to do these things. I'm going to get out and go for it. I'm going to make the most of this life because it could end today. And I want to leave a legacy behind me. And those whom you have touched in your life, like Joshua, will be ready to continue your work if you live that way, which is what we see in verse 9. And Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. So the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. Here's the Bible's final evaluation of Moses, that there was nobody like him ever who spoke to God face to face, who received direct revelation from God other than a dream or a vision or something like that, that his signs were unparalleled, parting the Red Sea, 10 plagues, water from the rock, manna from heaven. History remembers Moses as the lawgiver. A lot of the buildings in, in Washington, D.C. have carvings or paintings of Moses to represent law and law and order, and that's good. But the judgment of a man's life is ultimately going to be found in heaven, not on earth. Consider where Moses' life could have gone. He could have been a slave. Could have been a slave his whole life. He could have been a courtier, spending his life in Egypt, in the court, as, a, as an oddity. We've got a Hebrew here, kind of the, the token slave to show our so-called mercy. He could have been a revolutionary. That's what he was trying to do. Rise up, slaves, and let's conquer Pharaoh again. He could have been a shepherd for the rest of his life. He spent 40 years there. He could have been a king. He could have asserted his authority over the people. He could have been a lawgiver only or a conqueror if he had decided to bull his way into the promised land. But he served the Lord and all of those things pale in comparison to what he became through his service of the Lord. And the same is true for you and me. Whatever you could be will never amount to what you will be if you follow Jesus. But that means you've got to give up the could be. Luke 9, Jesus said, whoever would save his life will lose it. But don't think now in terms of death, although he's talking about it. Think that in terms of what you could be, your potential, your options. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. 
For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits, the way Luke puts it, himself? What is worth accomplishing that you might lose out on eternity with Jesus? That's what true legacy is all about. It's only when you lose everything that you can truly live. So I again urge you to serve those under your care with an eye to the future, but not just the now future, that's important, but to eternity, forever. Because the ultimate evaluation isn't gonna come in your obituary, it's gonna come when you stand before the judge. We can speak over somebody's life, yes, and we should, but in the end, words will fade, but a powerful memory of a godly man will last for a lifetime. And that's when true greatness is achieved, as Moses did. So we come to the end of the law. In canonical terms, that's the end of the introduction. From the primeval history of Genesis to the establishment of Israel as a nation, their rescue from Egypt, the establishment of the law, their wanderings, their impending victory, it's been a journey. And Deuteronomy caps it all off with a plea, enter the promised land and serve the Lord. But as we all know, human obedience was never sufficient to keep God's law. Grace was our only hope. As Paul told us in Romans 10:4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The only prophet that could be compared to Moses was Jesus himself. Because not only did he do greater things than Moses, he, not, he didn't teach us how to have a right way with God. He himself became the sacrifice and the atonement that could last forever. We who were driven out of Eden have finally been rescued, encountered God, and are moving our way through the wilderness until that final day when we enter into the glory of our Lord. Even right now, we're moving from slavery to sin to abundant life in Christ. May the lessons we have learned through God's law last for a lifetime. And may our lifetimes be lived with an eye to the fulfillment of the promises of God.